Wait, that's a thing? Never heard of it. Oh, you have no idea. This is Haven Space, a safe place for fantasies. Brought to you by sex coach and researcher Sarah Perry. Welcome back to Haven Space, and we are here with Dr. Regina Rodman, who is going to introduce herself and talk to us a little bit about what she does. Welcome. Thank you. I'm Dr. Regina Rodman. I am a facial plastic and craniofacial surgeon uh, in private practice here in Houston. I own the practice called Face Forward up in Greater Heights. Um, <clears throat> do all kinds of surgery, but my unique focus and what I spend most of my time doing is facial feminization, working with transgender women. Amazing. And will you tell us a little bit about how you found your passion for this niche? Yeah, so it wasn't always my plan to do this. Um, I went into, I, I always knew I wanted to do facial plastics. Um, I went into medical school knowing I, want, I wanted to be a surgeon. I love the idea that there's a problem and that I concretely with my hands can fix the problem when the patient leaves there, it's done. Um, <clears throat> I was interested in head and neck from the start. Uh, the head and neck is just a really like high real, like high price real estate. There's so many structures. You have to be very meticulous. You have to really know your anatomy. I always like that. Plastic surgery kind of blends art with science. And so, um, I love that in other areas of medicine, it's kind of a formula or there's an algorithm, like you have gallstones, you get your gallbladder out, you get a gallbladder infection, you have to get your gallbladder out. It's kind of this, there's like an algorithm. With plastic surgery, it's the opposite in that you have a problem, like you get a skin cancer and end up with a hole in the cheek. There's 10 different ways you can reconstruct that, 10 different ways you can fix that. You have to talk to the patients, understand them, understand what they're looking for, what kind of time frame, what their age is, to figure out what's the best solution for them. So I knew I wanted to do plastics, and I knew I wanted to work face. Um, I did a fellowship in craniofacial surgery, which uh, where I did a lot of bony work. So I did a lot of jaw reconstruction, um, orthognathic surgery, uh, distraction surgery. I also did a lot of uh, cranio or cranial surgery so for babies who are born with head uh, head deformities we would do frontal orbital advancements all kinds of these like crazy skull surgeries so when I got out of training um, I started in private practice there is not as many of those kind of cases um, available most of those kids end up at academic centers and just luckily there's not as many of those kind of severe birth defects in the United States so I was looking for a way to um, just utilize the skills of both cosmetic surgery and like bony reconstructive surgery. Um, and I learned about feline surgery, which is really popular in South Korea to narrow the jaw. Originally started out thinking that that's what I would do. I started marketing that. Um, I did a couple of women, Asian women who have, who had a big jaw um, and they didn't like that. I had a trans woman send me a message that said, hey, will you, are you willing to work with trans women? And I really, really believe that everybody deserves access to good healthcare and, you know, that I'm open to working with all patients. So, of course, I said yes, and um, she had a good result. She was happy. 
she told some of her friends who told their friends who told their friends. And so my practice now over the last six years has grown to primarily just work with, uh, well, I work with everybody still, but uh, the majority of what I do is um, facial feminization for transgender women. That's amazing. And I know that recently you've also been posting about working with trans men on. Yeah. So the thing about, um, the thing about hormones is, uh, hormones tend to work really well in changing the facial shape for trans men. Their face rounds out a little bit. Uh, they grow a beard. Some of their, sometimes their hairline recedes. They tend to look pretty masculine with just hormones alone. Whereas with trans women, if they have not, um, if they were not on hormones while they went through puberty, the bony changes in the face are um, happen during puberty, and surgery is really the only way to undo that or to reverse that. So, in the face, I see a lot more transgender women. However, there are some trans men who, despite growing kind of a, a, a beard or whiskers, um, still just feel like their face is too feminine, and they would like it with stronger, more masculine features, which I absolutely do. Um, we don't have as many of those patients, but there's all kinds of options um, for those patients also. Jaw implants, chin implants, it's possible to do a brow bossing implant, rhinoplasty to make the nose stronger. Um, so there's all kinds of options there too. It's just not as publicized. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, we were talking in our like little pre-meeting chat about how these ideas of what is feminine and masculine are super subjective and they're socially constructed. In fact, our um, in this country, our idea of what makes an attractive face is something that tends to have a lot of like very European characters. So you were saying that even like every single nose job you do is probably considered feminization because it does look more dainty and thin and narrow and pointy and all these characteristics that are actually super European. Yeah, so I think one of the things that I do well or I would like to think that I do well is I spend a ton of time with every patient and really try to talk about like what it is that bothers them as well as give my opinion about what strikes me as sort of heavy or masculine. Um, because every patient is different. And so there's some patients that like, I will see something in their face that I'm like, wow, that brow is really heavy. And then the patient will say like, nope, that doesn't bother me at all. What bothers me is my jaw. And I don't necessarily see it the same. And so I think, especially for trans women, um, understanding what gives them dysphoria is, is really important because ultimately the surgeries, the goal of surgery is to help treat their dysphoria. I want them to pass. I want them to be able to live safely wherever they are. But really, like, the goal of surgery is to treat dysphoria. So understanding what bothers them is important. Um, and that's kind of the same thing as I do with cis men and women, too, is, um, I mean, what bothers the patient is what we're treating. Yeah. And so it doesn't matter what other people think. It doesn't matter what society thinks. It doesn't matter if they're already pretty. If there's something that bothers somebody and we want to make it a little bit better, that's what we do. Um, generally there's certain features that we kind of are, are consistently deemed masculine or feminine. And then there's other features that really just vary by ethnicity, by, by genetics, by, um, aesthetic and what the patient finds beautiful. So 
what we were talking about is like the brow bone is something that almost all of my trans women want to have reduced um, as the uh, patients, like I said before, if they go through puberty, not on hormones, not on estrogen, the jaw, the nose, and the brow bone tend to grow more than a um, biologically females would. Um, so a lot of those patients want their brow bone reduced. Um, but there's some details like about how much of the orbital rim we take down. Um, some patients want it all gone. Other patients like to see a little light reflection there. The nose, all rhinoplasty really that I do is facial feminization. So even in cis women, um, I've never had a woman come and say, I like my nose bigger, a bigger hump. I want it to look more masculine, more strong. Like all women that come, trans and cis, they want their nose smaller, cuter, more refined, more of a point, take down the hump. Um, and because and that cis men is, too, though, right? Men, too. Men, though, sometimes will ask to keep the hump um, or they because they still want it to be strong. They'll keep the hump, but they want, like, the tip elevated or a little, you know, some, like they'll want a little bit less done. Um, but, yes, yeah, even then it is still often um, – making it softer they I, they were why would they would want to use the word feminine necessarily yes. but making it a little softer definitely true um but even that um there is a lot by ethnicity and by genetics and so there are like black women asian women and even some hispanic women that tend to just have a flatter dorsum a wider dorsum wider nostrils um that it, that's just their family's genetics. And so um, I try to be mindful of making it more feminine, but still like ethnically and culturally appropriate and matching the rest of their face. Yeah. And so. the, their family history, I'm sure in some ways, so you don't want to erase every sign of your heritage. Right. Yeah. And, and some people, some people are really clear about that. Other people, you know, it, it kind of varies what they, what they think. I think the biggest variability in what I do is with the jawline. Um, it is very in vogue right now to have a defined jawline. Women come in for fillers in the jawline. I actually do a fair amount of jaw implants in cis women who just want more definition. Um, I personally think it's beautiful. I love it. I love a nice cut jawline. Um, but that is something that it just depends on the patient. And so some patients want that some patients want less um so there's not a right or wrong answer you know it's just kind of what each patient aesthetically finds pleasing and how they want their own face to look so you mentioned you touched on something that i thought was so important i even wrote it down but the idea that you want people to pass but not just to pass because you want them to live their life like whatever gender they want to live their life as but literally because in the case of trans women they're in danger um, when they go out into the world and they look like a dude in a dress, literally in danger, they're being killed every single day without police investigation, without repercussion, with homophobia and transphobia being the literal excuse that they're using in front of the jury and not getting convicted. And so knowing that performing this type of surgery is literally life-saving, um, can you tell us a little bit about the insurance process and how that's paid for and maybe the disconnect that exists between something that's literally making you more likely to survive that maybe isn't covered by our current health care? 
Yeah, and so that's it, exactly is that um, we're actually we're like in a battle right now for a patient specifically today who they're trying to argue um, that it's not life saving that you know it's not needed it's not um, it's not critical um, which it's not life saving in this moment like but today. yes ultimately it may be the thing that saves her life when she's out one night or or traveling or you know in an unknown area. Um, so the insurance process, um, really, it varies by the employer. So insurances more and more are starting to cover it, um, but it really doesn't, people ask, like, what insurance covers it? It doesn't matter the plan. Um, it matters what plan your employer selects. So um, Starbucks actually has a great supplemental plan. They cover all gender-affirming surgeries, including top surgery, bottom surgery, face surgery, um, for all of their employees, which is awesome. Um, Amazon is another company that covers, um, there's a couple technology companies that are starting to cover some of these procedures. Um, but it's not necessarily whether you have Blue Cross or United or Cigna or whatever, it depends on which plan your employer chooses. So I'm, I mean, hopefully as more and more, um, people come to understand more about transgender patients, um, and the necessity of them you know, treating gender dysphoria and like how not only does it improve their, potentially save their life, it improves their quality of life, it improves their quality of work, it lowers their risk of depression, anxiety, suicide, mm -hmm. um, hopefully more, and as that becomes better realized, hopefully more employers will choose plans where that's included. So interesting side note, in the um, original um, court case for Roe versus Wade, one of the arguments that was used to make abortion legal and safe for all was that it is um, life-saving because of the super high suicide rates on women that are being forced to endure a pregnancy and childbirth against their will. So it's interesting that that was used there and I would say arguably sets a precedent for us to eventually one day take this type of thing to the Supreme Court. So what happens like in the case of your patient that you're having to fight. Do you just fight by yourself as a doctor? You just write a note and you say, I think it's life-saving and then leave it up to them. Do you get attorneys involved? How does that work? So at this point as a, as a solo practice, um, solo private practitioner, I try to provide the patients with the resources that they need, um, to argue their case, but it's really on them. I mean, I can't afford, I can't afford to hire mm -hmm. attorneys on behalf of the patients. Um, I have a couple of patients, so young patients that are, um, like I have one that's studying political science, wants to be a lobbyist, and so I'm trying to just kind of give them whatever information and yeah. fodder for their arguments is um, is helpful. Um, the insurance companies also try to require, they require um, letters from mental health professionals and um, a couple other, there's a couple other requirements for them to meet um, to be able to have surgery. Right now, um, a lot of that, like a lot of the power to have surgery and have it covered by insurance is with mental health professionals, which um, I absolutely agree that patients should, I mean, who doesn't need a therapist, right? Like, it's helpful to everybody, whether or not a therapist has the right to say, yes, you're transgender, and yes, you're qualified to have this surgery, I think is crazy. I personally don't use that model. I use the informed consent model, which is where I describe the surgery to patients. They can choose to have it or not. They don't, I don't need a therapist to tell me 
yes, they're transgender. Um, I like it when patients have therapists because I think the more support um, they can have, the better. Um, but to, to get back to answering your question, um, as far as like who's fighting it, it's, it's a little bit of everything. I think there's some doctors that are advocating. There's a lot of mental health professionals that are advocating. Um, but probably ultimately it's going to be up to patients themselves. I mean, but what you're saying is absolutely right. We would never, you'd never question a cis person coming in wanting a different looking nose, different looking cheekbones, different looking jawline, but then you want to send someone to a therapist because they want to do the exact same thing. It yeah. makes no sense. And it's totally a double standard. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, let's see. Okay. Um, what other questions that I have here? How about um, people being able to imagine what they'll look like? with a completely different face. Cause a lot of these, like you were saying, you're literally cutting into the bone, you're putting implants in, the changes in how people look are super drastic. So how can someone come in and then imagine what they're gonna look like? Do you do anything with so, that? Yeah, so there's a couple different things. Um, and some of this is under development. The best way still is to look at previous photos. Um, and so I think it's super helpful for patients to look at other patients' photos and be able to see, like, okay, this is about what I can expect for my brow lift. This is how much of an arch I can expect. And not just one or two, but, like, look through a lot of them. Um, I personally have some available on my website. We also have a big collection of photos um, of patients who are willing to share their photos with other patients but don't want them on the web, which I understand, especially trans women. I mean, they're depending on where they live, a lot of them still fear for their safety and like don't want it broadcast, you know, on social media that they made these changes. Um, but they're happy to help other patients and show, you know, their transformation. So that's still the best way. Um, there are other technologies. Um, we have a morphing system. So we can take the patient's photos in the office and then kind of, it's like a medical Photoshop uh, where I can alter the photos to show how the nose might look, how the brows might look, um, stuff like that. What I'm working on right now is combining a couple technologies. There are um, technologies that actually take a 3D image, like a 3D photograph, um, and you can morph that and change that so you can see beyond just two dimensions of like the profile of your nose, how adding fat to the cheeks will add projection, how taking bone away from the jaw will, you know, will make that more of a V-shaped slope. Um, there's 3D images, and what I'm working on is trying to combine some of the virtual surgical planning that I do. So I plan a lot of the bony cuts um, for the chin and jaw, especially on a CT scan with um, with one of the, the companies that I use for plates and screws um, and, and virtual surgical planning combining that with the 3d imaging and so this is a work in progress and we're still trying to negotiate or try to figure out how to overlay these computer algorithms but if once we get it going i think it's going to be a really cool thing because it's going to show patients with pretty good accuracy what they can expect based on the bony changes we're going to make to the face that sounds amazing and if you remind me too later i have a programmer that would probably be super interested in working with that project and okay. definitely does like pro bono work um, and for sure in the queer community. So let me know. Okay. Um, and then lastly, I really wanted to talk about um, just the emotional 
space that people are in when they come to you, when they walk out, how having access and being trans-affirming as a practice fills this very, very necessary void? Yeah, um, so I would say the patient experiences are as diverse as the patients. I've had some patients where um, just having surgery, like just taking the action of having surgery has brought them some relief, even before they can see any of the results, like just knowing that that they've done something, that they're going to look different, has been somewhat therapeutic. Um, I've had other patients that, um, you know, probably the average patient sees a little bit of difference once the swelling comes down in a week and starts to feel better and better. But the thing that I really emphasize to all of them is that it is a lot to go through. So it is a lot physically, emotionally, spiritually. It is a lot. It's the huge turning point in their transition. Um, and it's a lot physically to go through. I mean, it's, I don't know if anyone has seen my Instagram or followed my stories. Like it's crazy what I'm doing. I'm peeling their entire face off, rearranging everything, putting it all back. Um, it's a lot. They're in pain afterwards. I mean, they're really uncomfortable afterwards. It's hard to swallow. Their eyes might swell shut. Um, they look terrible after a, a good amount of time afterwards. Um, for cash pay patients, they've now spent, a, you know, maybe a, two years worth of savings. Their face is swollen. There's a lot of like, what did I do? Was this the right choice? Um, I really encourage patients to have a caregiver, like a friend or a family member with them afterwards. Um, but it's just a lot to go through by yourself. Like I would hate to have a patient going through that by themselves in a hotel room since most of my patients come from out of town. Um, so it's really important to have a strong support system afterwards because your face, it swells and goes down and bruises and it kind of goes through, all, it goes through all those changes. Um, it's, it can be painful. But also, like like I said, it's a big turning point. And for a lot of people, um, it's a joyful turning point, but it's also scary because you don't really know what's beyond it. So um, I think something that we've gotten good at and that my staff are really, really good at is um, just kind of like fielding those calls. And so we've had some patients that they get their surgery and they're good and everything is fine. And then we have other patients that call every day because they're worried about something or, you know, they just, I, I think they just need to talk to somebody and they just need to be reassured that everything is going to be okay. Um, I do some of that. My staff really do a great job at that. Um, they now have, you know, after having seen these patients for a few years are know what to look for. They know what to be worried about, but they also know how to just reassure patients that like it's, this is normal. It's also normal to be freaked out about how swollen your lips are. or It's normal to be freaked out about how swollen your eyes are. And assure them that, that, that that's going to go down and that's going to go away. So the key to having a practice like this is, is having a great staff. I mean, you definitely have an amazing staff. And I every time I've come in, I've had a great experience and never felt rushed. And I am definitely a talker, especially when I'm nervous. So um, I you brought up something that I hadn't thought about asking about. But for some of my listeners that could be considering doing some type of surgery, facial surgery for feminization or otherwise, what is an approximate timeline from the time you come in to when you're into surgery? And then what is an approximate ballpark cost? And I know that that can go all over the place, but give me like low spectrum to high spectrum. So um, really, really ranges. I have heard statistics that most the average patient, um, um, and this is not for facial feminization, but for any facial plastic surgery, 
the average patient from the time they think of something until they actually get surgery on average is two years. Um, there's a lot of kind of thinking about it. Maybe I'll get my nose done. Maybe I'll, um, maybe I'll, I'll do something about it. Then they kind of start looking at photos and then maybe start researching surgeons. By the time they come in for a consult till the time they have surgery, for facial feminization, it's probably four to six months because um, people need to arrange for someone to stay with them. They need to arrange for travel. They need to have a, about a, a three to four weeks off of work. So there's a lot of planning that goes into it. Um, for like a rhinoplasty or a facelift or something um, that's not a full facial feminization, um, it's usually, usually about four to six weeks out. Um, the same patients need to take one to two weeks off of work, have somebody pick them up from surgery, at least stay with them a day or two. So it's really more just like the kind of time patients need to get everything um, situated. Um, cost depends on how many things you want done. Um, but I mean, just roughly, there's not many surgeries you can get for less than $10,000 total. By the time you add up OR fees, anesthesia fees, surgeon fees, all that stuff, um, I mean, we do a couple in-office procedures that are less than that, like lip lifts and Renubion skin tightening, like a mini facelift. Um, but if you're going to sleep and having like a rhinoplasty or something, probably looking at like eight or $9,000. Um, all the way to patients who, if they want to get everything, everything done in a facial feminization, it's probably closer to like $50,000. Um, so this is something, I mean, these patients save for this for years. Like they're, they're thinking and nobody, I mean, few people just have $50,000 in the back pocket. Right. So, um, whenever I've, I've had some, uh, people who don't know what they're talking about, um, say like, Oh, well, you know, a lot of these patients change their mind. No, they don't. <laughs> no, they don't. Nobody is willing to like spend their life savings, get their face cut open, go through what they go through postoperatively for something they just thought of, you know, okay. I mean, these patients think about this for years and years. Um, also on the question of timelines, I usually recommend that for facial feminization patients, they have been on hormones for 18 months or so, or at least a year. However, I don't require that because I do have patients that just don't want to be on hormones for various reasons. Um, and that's totally fine too. The benefit of being on hormones a little bit longer is the skin softens. There's a little bit more subcutaneous fat makes the results a little bit more predictable. Um, they don't, not necessarily that there's something that they wouldn't need. Like it doesn't soften the jaw. It doesn't soften the brow bone. Um, but it, I think it helps me to do a little better rhinoplasty when the skin is thinner. <clears throat> but I, I, I also have patients that once they start to transition and they start hormones, um, they just say, there's no way that I, I want to wait 18 months. Like I really feel like I need surgery now. Um, and, and that's totally fine because it kind of goes back to our original point yeah. of like, who am I, who is anyone to say what that patient is experiencing? Yes. And so if they understand the risks and they understand, you know, the full process, then we'll do it at any point. That's good to know. Um, yeah, especially I do have some people in my life that are currently transitioning and so exploring what that looks like for them what options they have I think is just it's like a big vast open ocean so it's nice to have kind of a little timeline for don't make any choices right now for this and if you can like emotionally afford to wait 
Yeah, so hormones is usually the place people start. Like I said, not everybody chooses to do that, or some people have an adverse reaction. Or I have one patient that just wants to have her own biologic children um, with a woman, and so she's just not going to ever go on hormones. And that's fine. We've done all kinds of stuff to her face. She looks gorgeous. Um, yep. I think that's the other – that's, like, sort of a message I try to really put out there is that, um, like – Trans women are as diverse as any group of women, you know, with different interests, different needs, different looks, different desires. So um, that's what makes my job challenging, but also really cool is that each face is different and what each person needs is different. Absolutely. So how can I and my followers help you? Um, well, I love any kind of support on social media. Uh, my Instagram handle is, uh, Dr. Dr. Period R-O-D-M-A-N. Um, there are a ton of people who I try to delete them who post negative comments about trans women, any, but I think the better balance is just to like flood it with positivity. Okay. I think we can do that. So hopefully we'll get you some followers. And then if anybody wants to reach out, your website is, uh, faceforwardhouston.com. Amazing. Um, great. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on this call with me. And sorry about the crazy scheduling, but my pleasure. Yeah. Busy people who work, you know, it was wonderful yeah. talking to you and I will see you next time. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in everyone. This has been another podcast of Haven Space. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Haven Space by Sarah and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Haven Space by Sarah. If you enjoyed this talk, consider becoming a patron and helping fund more talks like this in the future.